Welcome to The Root of the Matter, brought to you by UPL. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you fresh ideas and insights about agriculture in North America. I'm your host, Ken Root. In our lawns, gardens, wild spaces, and fields, everyone is aware that there is trouble for the species that pollinate our plants. Bees come to mind, but there are many other insect species and others that move pollen from plant to plant, allowing the symbiotic relationship to continue. But the question of what to do to rectify the problems remains as large as ever. In this next half hour, we'll try to answer a range of questions about pollinator species today and what we can do to help them do their job. Joining me is Miles Dakin. Miles, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, thanks for having me on. You are a bee-friendly farming coordinator of the Pollinator Partnership. Is that correct? That is, yeah. How long has this organization been in effect, and how long have you been with them? Yeah, so Pollinator Partnership has been around for uh, almost 25 years. Um, I've been with the company uh, just about two years exactly, and um, we sort of operate and, and handle all things pollinators um, sort of globally. So our focus is, is just pollinators. What's your background educationally and uh, life experience? Yeah, so I um, grew up on a small uh, plum orchard in Sonoma County, California. And um, and then I went on to get my master's at UC Davis in entomology, um, where I studied pest management in almonds and pistachios. Um, and then I joined Pollinator Partnership um, because, really because of this background in, in almonds in California, we were, were looking to collaborate with the almond industry specifically to help sort of bring along their um, bee-friendly program. Um, and so um, we had a bee-friendly farming certification, and they wanted to do more with, with pollinators. Um, so it was a great collaboration, and it's been awesome for the last two years. Well, even though you have such interesting species in California and such um, amazing crops. Many of the crops we grow across the country, you also grow them in California, but they're not the high-value crops. So I'm sure you've got a wide range of things you can talk about. There are people in the Midwest that have uh, alfalfa, and, uh, of course, we are covered with corn and soybeans, wheat, and other species of plants here that we utilize to feed the world. Is this a really desperate situation right now on getting a handle on keeping pollinators doing their job do we have some time to be able to make some changes yeah it it is a, a dire situation for sure um that isn't to say that we don't have some time but um you know countless pollinator species are in decline you know for example the monarch butterfly has declined over 90 percent in the last 20 years at least a quarter of all bumblebees are in serious decline, if not more. Of course, honeybees, you know, even though they're a managed pollinator and, and aren't native to the U.S., they're still under increasing stresses, either due to, you know, more production, as demands for earlier, for, uh, for earlier pollination, um, or just, um, you know, they're, they're also dealing with diseases and other, um, other issues. So it is definitely a dire situation. I think it's um, it's important to separate honeybees from our other pollinators because they're a little bit different than each other. But um, 
but all pollinators are 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 facing serious issues right now. Well, it seems like agriculture has done some collateral damage. Without a doubt, we have eliminated species that some insects require. Uh, so we have, in that way, reduced their habitat. Uh, I think the monarch is probably the classic example of it, that uh, those larvae have got to feed on milkweed because that makes the, uh, the insect, uh, the butterfly, toxic to birds, which I find an interesting uh, correlation. And the color of the butterfly gives that indication. And we've literally destroyed your western range species, it appears. And the Midwestern ones have a, a challenge if they're going to come back. Are there other species the same way that what we've been doing has been the right thing for us and the wrong thing for these insects? Well, I mean, habitat loss is absolutely the, the single largest issue um, for all pollinators. So that, like you said, you know, the monarch butterfly and their, their caterpillar requires milkweed. Um, that's the case with most uh, moths and butterflies. But, you know, bees, which represent, you know, tens of thousands of species in the U.S., um, about 70% of those bees nest in the ground. And when that ground is disturbed, if it's through tillage or planting things on top of it or building or, you know, the name that those, that loss of good, safe nesting habitat is, is huge for them. So it's not only the loss of flowering plants, native flowering plants that they use, but also really important resources for reproduction. Um, the same goes for stem nesting and cavity nesting bees. Um, they often can require, you know, specific characteristics of a plant, right? The the size of the stem that they might nest in. And if those plants um, are taken out, then they just have less nesting material. Give me an overview here from your perspective of just how large an impact pollinators have in our in our world. I know it's huge, but I'm not sure I can really grasp it. Yeah, it, it is absolutely huge. So about one in every three bites of food that you eat is a direct result of, of pollination from an insect or an animal. Um, so pollination occurs across, you know, dozens and thousands of species of, of both plants, you know, non-agricultural plants, but also crop plants that we grow for food. So it, it's not just insects that we're talking about here, right? There are mammals, bats, and some marsupials. There's birds, you know, even some lizards. Those vertebrate pollinators represent about a thousand species, but the insects definitely make up the vast majority of pollinators. It's about 200,000 species of invertebrate pollinators. So those are your bees, butterflies, um, moths, beetles, ants, wasps, etc. In general, we're looking at somewhere of, in terms of value of crops, there's it's somewhere in the range between 235 to $580 billion globally of crops that rely on pollination. So economically, it's a huge, you know, pollinators represent a huge economic benefit. In the U.S., it's, you know, honeybees are right around the range of $12 billion of pollination value, non-aphis bees, somewhere around the range of $3.4 billion. Um, so it, it is a huge, huge industry and a huge importance to, you know, global economies and global food supplies. Certain crops, you know, really have to have pollinators pollinate them um, in order to get good fruit set. 
And then this is the other thing is it's not only about producing a lot from from the land, but also producing high quality food. So crop quantity and quality are both related to how well pollination happens. And so without these pollinators, the quality of the food can actually decrease. For the benefit of our audience, walk me through pollination as it occurs in in the plants that need an outside source to pollinate them. Not every plant needs it, but if you have females of a species and males of a species of, of plants, you've got to get the pollen uh, to the female, and even, I suppose, on other plants as well within the same um, tree or whatever it may be, you've still got to get these outside pollinators to work through. They get a benefit from the nectar but they also carry the pollen at the same time. So from your entomologist side, tell me how it works. Yeah, so so you're absolutely right. There are a lot of different uh, ways that pollination can happen and a lot of different flower structures. So you can have both male and female parts of the flower in, in one flower together. You can have male flowers and female flowers. Um, but in in self-incompatible species, so species that need um, pollen from a different individual, you do need some sort of transfer. And so sometimes that happens via wind, but most of the time it's animal-mediated pollination. And so the animal is going to the flower for some resource. It, it could most likely is nectar, but in some cases like beetles and even bees as well actually want some of the pollen to consume as well. So they're going there to collect these resources, and in doing so, they get a bunch of pollen on them. So, you know, bees have hair or other structures to hold the pollen. Um, they collect it, and then they fly to another flower to get more resources. And then by doing so, they knock off pollen. It gets onto the female part of the flower and transfers and then reproduces. So um, there are a lot of different characteristics, and it depends on what species you have, but generally, the pollinator has to have some structure on their body to hold pollen, um, and then that helps them transfer it. I can't believe that everyone wouldn't be fascinated by watching the nature shows like I do that show the ingenious ways that plants have figured out how to get their pollen onto an insect who then moves it to another side. I mean, there are some of them that, that go totally out of their way to accomplish it, it's taken millennia to be able to make that happen. I guess there was no pollination back in the age of the dinosaurs when all the plants were ferns, but we are tearing it up in such a short period of time. It seems so sad that if we are the culprits on this, that we have done it to these insect species who developed this over millennia. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's definitely, um, definitely heartbreaking when you look at it that way. I mean, it's important to understand that there are so many issues that these pollinators are facing, right? Habitat loss is obviously huge. Climate change is massive. You know, with insects in particular, they really rely on temperature for development. And so as the climate is getting warmer or getting, you know, weather is getting more extreme, those development cycles start to get messed up essentially. Um, and therefore, you know, they don't emerge at the right time or they, they emerge too early, but there's no flowers available and they die off or who knows. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very tricky situation that we're in. 
I'm talking with Miles Dakin, who's a beef friendly farming coordinator for the Pollinator Partnership. And Miles, early on, you tended to set honeybees aside into a different category than many of these other pollinators. Of course, we have, in effect, domesticated the honeybee. We definitely have made them useful to us in a manner that you wouldn't even think we could do by moving these colonies around and moving them into these orchards and letting them pollinate. They're going through decline as well. Um, why do you class them different than you do the natural pollinators that aren't farmed like we do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to understand that there's, you know, they, we have the ability to rear them and raise them in huge numbers. And part of that is that they're, they're pretty unique. So just the background, the honeybee, Apis mellifera, is the European honeybee. It was, you know, brought over several hundred years ago. and um, it's somewhat unique in when you compare it to the pollinators we have here in North America natively in that it lives in these very large hives. You know, most of our pollinators are solitary and they live by themselves and they, you know, interact with other individuals in order to mate. Whereas these honeybees live in these huge, huge hives and therefore it's really easy to produce them in large numbers. Um, and, and, that's really where the difference comes in. I mean, you can you can supplemental feed them, you can put them in um, in big buildings to regulate their temperature and and um, help with development, and you can move them in large numbers. And so, they definitely are going through stresses, and I don't want to to diminish that in any way. It's it's absolutely extremely hard for a honeybee, and you know, if it's pesticide exposure or other food you know habitat um, loss, um, if it's increased demand for them. Um, but it is slightly different because, you know, with native pollinators, we can't really raise them on those numbers and then support them that way. So in order to support the native pollinators, we have to plant habitat and protect them through management practices. Um, it's, it's slightly different. The Varroa mite appears to be a factor in killing out or weakening these colonies of honeybees. Uh, where do you class it on being a threat to the honeybee versus the other things we're doing? Yeah, it, it is absolutely a huge threat. So the varroa mite can, you know, over, literally overnight destroy an entire hive. Um, they are, um, they reproduce extremely quickly and can reproduce basically from one individual female. Um, they, you know, what's happening with the honeybee is that they're being exposed to all of these harsh conditions, right, um, that they're overall weaker. And so they have a less ability to fight off these infections from varroa, but also other diseases um, and other pests. And so, you know, if we had healthier bees, so if we were supporting honeybees through, you know, providing other foraging types, um, you know, less pesticide exposure, you know, combating climate change, they would be stronger to fight off these diseases, just like we're healthier and able to fight off more diseases when we're healthy. Well, the honeybee is critical to your crops in California. That's your specialty area. Is the cost to the grower of almonds and other pistachios and other tree crops going up because of the challenges the beekeepers have to uh, get those hives healthy enough to transport them into your area? Absolutely, yeah. The prices have increased dramatically 
for for per hive. Um, it's I think it's upwards of two hundred dollars a hive now. Um, and with almond production, you generally want about two hives per acre. So we have about one point six million acres of almonds in California. So you can do some simple math, and that's that's a lot of money that growers have to spend on on honeybees. Wow. Well, it's an industry all on its own. What are the people that raise honeybees telling you? Are they in your camp as well? What do they say needs to be done? Because, quite frankly, I trust the farmer to identify the problems he's got as good as anybody. And if you're a bee farmer, you ought to be able to say, this is causing me the problem more than something else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what we're seeing a lot with beekeepers is, you know, this, increasing demand for early pollination is extremely challenging. You know, in California, it's very hard to grow flowering plants as early as almond bloom. Almond bloom is generally sometime in February, early March. Those bees have to be brought very early when they're still in their overwintering stage. So they kind of go dormant during the winter and um, aren't normally ready to wake up that early. And so they're being, you know, tricked into waking up, but when when an, a honeybee is brought into an almond orchard, it, they're generally brought in a little early, right? They don't want to miss bloom, so they bring the bees in before all of the crop has bloomed, and then what happens is there's not that much to feed on, and so what we're trying to do and what we're getting positive feedback from beekeepers is that if we can encourage growers to find other plants that will bloom early, you know, like cover crops or some of our native hedgerow plants, um, then those bees have something to feed on. And then they're waking up, the hives are starting to reproduce, they're getting stronger, and then almond bloom happens and they're ready to go. Um, and then same thing after bloom. It, bloom is very quick, it's only a few weeks maximum, but the honeybees will stay there until it's done. And so if there's still other food to feed on in the orchard once bloom is done, then the, those bees just retain health, remain healthier, and then when they leave to go pollinate apples or something else, then they're, you know, really strong. So we're getting really good positive feedback from honey uh, or from beekeepers about planting alternate forage for crops or or in crops and for honeybees. Um, And then, you know, our management practices that we encourage as well. So a big one that we encourage is integrated pest management. You know, IPM has been around forever, but it's still not, you know, either adopted or implemented in its full capacity. And, um, and bees aren't really included in it all the time. And so what we're trying to do is in- encourage growers to include pollinators in their IPM programs and making sure that they're being very aware about how and when they're using pesticides um, to avoid any potential contact with pollinators. Well, Miles, you've been to the Midwest, I'm sure, and you know the uh, monoculture, if you will, that we have in the exceptionally good lands to where you grow a crop on 98% of your acreage and you have uh, an eight-foot strip where the deer seem to exist well, uh, but you have no other habitat other than that. Um, And I know that on monarch butterflies, there's been a lot of awareness and a lot of work by the chem industry and others to try to get farmers to put in little preserves for this. is this anywhere close to enough for those in the Midwest and the big, wide open spaces to uh, offset what's happened? 
I, I don't know if it's enough. I don't know if I can answer that question. But what I can say is that we are seeing more integration of habitat within fields in the Midwest. So there was some very interesting research out of Iowa that showed that integrating prairie strips directly into your corn production. So, you know, every few, you know, hundreds of feet or so you plant in this strip of wildflowers. Pollinators were very abundant, came back very well, and even were able to deal with some small amounts of pesticide exposure and and were fine. So the net benefit was still, you know, it was still a positive net benefit even when those crops or those those flowers were directly in the crop. Um, you we also see some evidence that you know practicing IPM and increasing your pollinator presence actually increases your yield and offsets land that you might take out of production to put in habitat instead. So it is possible to grow more food and higher quality food on slightly less land if you're integrating pollinator habitat within that land. Explain your comment you made earlier, you made again now, higher quality food. Why would it be higher quality? Yeah, so um, so there's some research that shows that when cross-pollination happens, you're getting, you know, you're mixing genetic material between two individuals, and so therefore that, you know, that nut that or, you know, that uh, fruit that's going to get produced can be at higher quality. Um, there's some also, you know, proper pollination results. So improper pollination can result in the, in, in, fruits getting aborted and being dropped off by the tree, which is, or the plant, um, which is stressful. And so if you have good pollination, that plant is less stressed and is they're able, able to use their resources and, and produce good fruit. Yeah, outcrossing sounds what you're saying, and uh, heterosis another, if you have uh, the organisms made, if you will, that are of the same species, but different lineage, I understand that. If there's any Thing the pesticide industry can do, what would that be to help bees and other species maintain their status in nature? Yeah, I, I think the biggest one is education. I think um, going back to what I said earlier about integrating or bringing in pollinators into IPM programs, I think that is huge. Um, I think the pesticide companies have you know, direct relationships with growers and are able to, or, or with PCAs or crop advisors or, you know, numerous other people, I think they can encourage this um, integration of pollinators into their, their management programs. And I think that's the biggest one. I, I really do think that's important. If you're not in agriculture, um, but yet you may be a gardener or you just care, what can they do to help? Yeah, I'm going to risk sounding like a broken record here, but I'm just going to say habitat, habitat, habitat. Um, you know, I think homeowners or community gardeners, I mean, even schools, local, state, federal governments, they can also they can all contribute by putting in habitat. Um, there's obviously a lot of private and government-owned land that isn't in agriculture that isn't, you know, up to supporting pollinators. One thing here in California, and I'm sure in many other states, 
you know, we're obviously being faced with a huge drought. And, um, and one of the things that often gets highlighted is people's lawns. Um, and by some, you know, making some small adjustments, maybe replacing your lawn with native habitat, not only can you reduce your water use, but you can also be putting in plants that support pollinators. Um, and the same thing goes, you know, with, with going back to education, I think it's really important to not only educate people and, and homeowners and community members, but also kids, you know, they're going to go on to be the future. And if they can be made about aware about pollinators early, you know, this stigma of, oh, bugs are gross and, you know, they're going to sting you or hurt you, that needs to go away in order to really get to, to the future of supporting pollinators and all biodiversity. Well, I'm sorry about the drought you're having uh, and the reaction you're having to have to that drought. Um, and you're not the only place in the world that has that, but it, uh, it does seem like it could be something, an opportunity for being able to go back to uh, um, a zero input lawn, if you would, a natural vegetation that will grow in that area normally. Um, the challenge, I guess, is to just get our mindset converted from, from green to gray or green to brown. Uh, that's kind of tough to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's why we really always try to bring in all of the other benefits associated with it. So um, what's really awesome about pollinator habitat is that it has so many other benefits, not just supporting pollinators. You know, cover crops obviously are talked about a lot for their soil health benefits, but flowering cover crops provide food for bees. Um, the, these plants all sequester carbon. Um, you know, just pulling that carbon out of the ground and or out of the air and putting it in the ground is huge. And then for the water issues, not only do these plants act as filtration, they can pull out runoff, you know, excess nitrogen that's running off or who, kn who knows. They also help with infiltration, so actually getting the water to go into the ground and stay there. So we always try to bundle these benefits in with pollinator habitat because they address so many other issues related to climate change and um, sustainability. Miles Dickin, you've got a website that I understand is quite good. What is it that people can go to and uh, be able to um, read up on what they can do to make a positive impact for pollinators? Yeah, so our website is pollinator.org. Um, we also have befriendlyfarming.org for our certification, so if any farmers or ranchers want to get certified for their bee-friendly practices, that's another place to go to. I also do just really quickly want to uh, make a shout-out for a few of our other uh, partners. So um, there are a lot of other amazing organizations doing really great work, um, and some of them even have seed and plant grant programs that growers can get free pollinator plants. So those are Project Apis M, Monarch Joint Venture, and Monarch Watch. Most, you know, some of them are in California, but a lot of them are all over the U.S. I signed up for one a couple of years ago, and they shipped me some milkweed plants, and they grew. I don't know how much expensive that expense that was. Are those still going on? Yeah, so right now Monarch Watch has a free milkweed program. There are others out there as well. Um, they're, they're great. You know, these oh, – excuse me. Uh, there are other uh, – or one thing about pollinator – plants is that they can be quite expensive. So these cost share programs or grant programs are really beneficial.
Well, the same goes for wildflowers and for native prairie. It's not easy to put native prairie back in place. No, absolutely not. It's it's very challenging. But uh, we need to do what we need to do to move forward. And uh, government programs do help farmers get the idea that that's the right thing to do and give them the incentives financially to accomplish it. But I hope that in agriculture um, and across the country, we can see that the pollinator decline is a serious problem that's real, and it affects our food supply. Miles, are there any events coming up or things that we should know about that might get people supercharged on pollinators? Yeah, the the biggest one is National Pollinator Week coming up um, towards the end of June. I believe it's June 20th through the 26th this year. Um, and it's a really a worldwide week to support and talk about pollinators. Um, you can go to our website and look for the Pollinator Week banner and go and see events that people have, have posted. You can post your own event and, and host something um, and just participate and talk about pollinators. So we'll be hosting some as well. Um, it's really a great time to highlight pollinators. Pollinator.org, by the way, is P-O-L-L-I-N-A-T-O-R.org. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. Miles, it's been wonderful to hear your expertise and to just talk about this. Miles Dakin, you're the Bee Friendly Farming Coordinator. That's such a pleasant title with the <laughs> Pollinator Partnership. Thank you very much for talking with us. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. This is, has been great. Thanks for listening to The Root of the Matter, sponsored by UPL. New episodes will be available every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Have a great day.